This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Right now, there seems to be tons of books coming out right now. Okay, maybe not tons, but several books on the market right now that attempt to take on the religious right. It's uh, interesting. I'm getting several of them in the mail from publishers. Actually, in preparing for today's discussion, I put an information sheet in the book in another book other than the one I was wanting to bring to me, bring today, to talk to our guest. Fortunately, I picked it up on time, and I, uh, I've got the right book with me, which is good. doesn't always happen that way. I'm talking today with Reverend Peter Larman about his book, Getting on Message, Challenging the Christian Right from the Heart of the Gospel. This is actually a collection of essays from a number of authors, and uh, Peter is the editor we have him on the line, and just a few words about Peter Larman. He's the executive director of Progressive Christians Uniting, co-director of the Center for Prophetic Renewal in Los Angeles, and a board member of Faith Voices for the Common Good. Before moving to California, Larman served as senior minister of New York's historic Judson Memorial Church, and welcome to Common Threads, Peter Larman. It's wonderful to be with you. Thank you. Uh, as I mentioned, um, there are a number of books uh, on uh, on the market right now that attempt to challenge the uh, the power of the religious right. My first question to you is, what took you guys so long? Well, in fact, uh, there was a, a certain stunning uh, around November 2004, and I, I needn't uh, say what the occasion was, but uh, shall we say on, on November 3rd, uh, 2004, a lot of moderate and progressive leaders of faith were scratching their heads and and saying, uh, "Oh my, where? What have we been doing? Right? What have we been missing here? There is clearly a very well organized, very well financed voice from the religious right. We don't, you know, dispute the right of." those folks to be active in the public square, but where have we been? And so a lot of publishers, likewise, um, began scratching their heads. In my case, uh, the folks at, at uh, Beacon said, what about, a, what about a book that kind of reminds people that uh, the legacy of Christianity isn't all um, how it might be expressed by some of these national uh, panjandrums of the right? So that was the genesis of it. And then, of course, there were organizational discussions as well in terms of what kind of networking capacity and communications capacity is missing. This uh, soul-searching continues, Fred. I mean, uh, I, I'm an ordained minister of the United Church of Christ. Their national newspaper had a very long article uh, under the broad rubric of whither the main line. You know, the numbers are still there, but the voice isn't there. What's that about? Now, it's interesting that for a long time, 
the the people on the right and sometimes mainstream media as well would indicate that religion was not important to people on the progressive, moderate, liberal side of the fence, that that uh, the people such as the Pat Robertsons and Jerry Falwells and uh, others, they were the ones talking religion, and the left was sort of poo-pooing religion. Would you agree that uh, in the last, say, 20 years that, that there's a basis for that thought? I think that's a very apt uh, observation, uh, and yet the fault isn't entirely on the left. I think what happened was that if you look at the middle of the 20th century, there was a kind of convergence of what people were pleased to call, and I, I, you know, I'm putting this in invisible quotation marks, enlightened religion and the secular project. I mean, many mainline leaders were leaders of universities, as we know, and were uh, pleased that there seemed to be, uh, uh, you know, enlightened science rational thinking and what we call enlightenment thinking um, and the the precepts that 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 you know god's revelation is ongoing and god's revelation is imminent uh, everything seemed to be moving in in sync and the country seemed to be moving in a generally positive direction so it was felt by people in religious leadership in those decades that it wasn't necessary so much to use the old-time religion language, the, the, what, what I would call the, the biblical echoes, uh, that probably was a big, big mistake. And then parallel to that, there is, in fact, on the left in the United States, a culture that's, that's just phobic on the subject of religion. I mean, just doesn't want to hear about it, uh, allergic, uh, tends to ridicule people. You have to, I mean, when people, I'm in Los Angeles, right? I mean, talk about your Hollywood liberals. I have to... Uh, kind of not apologize for, but I have to. People have to, it takes a while for people to feel comfortable, even you know, with a person who's a minister and a committed Christian. Sure. Um, and that, and you know, we've had actually some very interesting discussions about precisely that issue. Um, why is that, and uh, and is that a healthy thing? Yeah, I was. And then you had things like you know the the Democratic uh, candidate. Uh, uh, Howard Dean saying that his favorite New Testament book was Job. You know, these, <laughs> yeah. these are problems. <laughs> these, these, yes, are problems. I know. You're going to pander, at least pander accurately. Right. I, I spoke to a woman who was a visiting uh, uh, professor here in Grand Rapids from Los Angeles. And here in Grand Rapids, uh, this is a very, very uh, religious community. Uh, and uh, she was, it was culture shock for her because she was a secular Jew and living in Los Angeles, she said, you know, people there in her circle, and again, you mentioned Hollywood, Hollywood is her circle, uh, she's, uh, she's a filmmaker, uh, she just uh, said, people don't talk about religion. So I can understand you've, you've got a, a job on your hands, don't you? Right, but there is a different climate, and again, I think it relates to uh, some sense of urgency about these issues in, in the country. Uh, uh, people uh, have talked to me, it may even be the same person, I don't want to mention her name on the air, but uh, people who, are, who come from that part of the world have actually now approached me and people like me to say, help us understand this, help us, uh, uh, we'll help you create some uh, points of contact, some some uh, media support 
for a progressive Christian message. Uh, there's a feeling, I think, on the part of the the hardcore secular left that they've uh, isolated themselves from the mainstream of the culture, and that people, this is the and this is the key point, that people who call themselves evangelicals, for example, are not a monolithic group. They're not the same as fundamentalists. There's some overlap, but there are also tons of evangelicals who are very concerned about uh, inequality. They're very concerned about things like Darfur. They're concerned about sex trafficking. They're concerned about, uh, you know, they're on the right side of this estate tax question that's been debated in the Senate, and so so on and so forth. They may not be able to, to snap to attention on issues like uh, gender and sexual equality, right? Gay, the so-called gay issues, or or abortion, but they're they're people who are seriously conscientious, committed lovers of democracy, and to exclude them uh, on the basis that well they're religious, so forget about them, is just insane. That's insane. You mentioned a couple of minutes ago. You said uh, when you're talking about the mainstream religion. No. In America, you said the numbers are there, but not, I believe you said the voice. Are the numbers there? I, I keep hearing that uh, the numbers of mainstream Protestant uh, denominations, or rather, yeah, denominations and congregations are, are diminishing. Well, the, if you look at the annual yearbook reports of bodies like the Methodists, Presbyterians, and so forth, it's very depressing. That's, that's certainly true. John Green, uh, who runs the Pew Forum on uh, Religion in American Life uh, and is also a professor at the University of, of Akron, is pretty much regarded by everybody as the best tracker of the numbers and the trends and so forth. And he's written recently a monograph about what he calls the 12 tribes of religion. He, he kind of characterizes the subgroups pretty pretty accurately, I think. And what he says is that if you... If you, uh, it's 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 it depends on how you rank these. But if you take the mainline churches are now sometimes called the historic Protestant churches. If you take all of them um, plus the part of the evangelical world uh, who who are uh, clearly moderates on some of these hot button issues and and receptive to a progressive message, and you take. Um, the members of the um, historic African American churches and progressive Roman Catholics, there are there are significantly more voters in that amalgamation than in what's normally characterized as the as the hard religious right. Now, you know, uh, these things can be debated endlessly, and it depends on how this this is sliced. Uh, but the numbers are not insignificant in the progressive to to moderate side. There's also the factor that, um, as I've discovered here in California, Southern California, about 30%, and George Barna's research uh, also backs this up, about 30% of the people who are progressive Christians aren't affiliated with any congregation. So, of course, they're not showing up in those uh, yearbooks. They've just kind of dropped out. They're, they're, they can't find a church that speaks to them, and so they just don't go to church. That doesn't mean that they're not uh, reachable. In fact, my organization sets up little base community groups. We call call them common ground groups, designed to appeal to those people. So they have a place where they can talk about their their faith and also about their concerns about the country. 
Not that you've read every single book that has come out on this subject in, no. in recent years, but how would you say that your book, Getting the Message, uh, might stand out, might, might be a different take on this subject? Well, uh, the book I edited does not have a single voice. It's a, uh, it's, a, it's a chorus of voices, not all of them completely in harmony with uh, each other, and the, you know, the approaches taken are very different. Marilyn Robinson, the novelist and essayist, wrote what everybody says to me is an incredibly difficult essay, the first essay, but it's, uh, this should appeal to people in and around Grand Rapids. She's writing as a Calvinist about the, the grace of God, which we can't fathom, and the generosity of God, which we likewise can't fathom. And she says, if you think about it, the, the foundation and the importance of having a secular state, one that's not um, uh, hijacked by any religious party or faction, uh, is contained within that vision of, 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 of Calvinist liberality. Um, I think it's a profoundly important uh, uh, essay. But then, you know, you, you go from an essay like that to one that's more um, kick-butt savage, if I can use that expression. Uh, the very last essay of the book by Garrett uh, Kaiser is about uh, how come the Bible talks so much about wealth and the perils of wealth and uh, among these so-called Christianists, right, the right-wing uh, people, um, that subject is uh, either not discussed or they're pro-wealth, right? They're, they're, <laughs> they're pro-abolish the estate tax. Very bizarre. Uh, so there's that range of stuff. I would say this book uh, has a little bit more uh, sadness and anger than some of the others, but I don't, uh, you know, I, uh, when I say the others, I mean these are uh, Kevin Phillips' book about theocracy, maybe, or a very wonderful, wonderful new book by Randall Balmer. I don't think it's in stores yet, but I saw uh, proof pages on it uh, called um, Thy Kingdom Come, an evangelical lament about the Christian right. Profoundly important book. They're, they're written with a single voice, right? They're written by one author, and so uh, uh, it's a rather different uh, enterprise. The, uh, the religious right, when, well, let's, the right, the, the, the conservative movement in America oftentimes is characterized in, in two camps, uh, the religious right and what, what are called the country club Republicans. Right. Do you have any evidence of the religious right compromising on any of their, uh, of their principles to allow the country club Republicans into the camp, if you will, uh, to encourage the the more financially based issues, such as the estate tax, I think there's quite a bit of evidence of that, um, and I think it's very sad uh, to see the extent to which, um, uh, again, let's let's describe it as I, I I think of the the label evangelical as a positive label. I think that's uh, you know I think uh, an energetically committed form of Christianity is 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 a good thing. If it's respectful of other faiths, but you know, um, we're we're asked as Christians, those of us who are Christians, we're asked to give an account of the hope that's in us. That's what evangelicalism is. But then down in Alabama, when uh, a a committed Christian who happens to be governor there, Riley, uh, said, "Look, our state is in trouble. We're not funding basic services 
basic services that everyone depends on because our taxes are so pitifully low. And he put forward a proposal. He was influenced somewhat by uh, a professor at the University of uh, Alabama, and I'm sorry I'm blanking on her name, but a wonderful person who began to write about this problem from a Christian perspective, you know, making the case as we're supposed to do on the basis of New Testament ethics um, that um, to have a humane uh, community where all are welcomed at the common table, so to speak, Alabama needed to do something about its taxes. So Bob Riley put across a proposal, and the Christian coalition came in there, spent a lot of money, and squished it like a bug, right? So one wants to say, what's that about? Uh, you know, and have they read their Bible or listened to the voice of Jesus lately? And then you have, of course, also this very odd hookup of people like Ralph Reed, um, who, you know, got their start on the religious right and still claim to be God-fearing Christians, uh, with uh, Abramoff, uh, Tom DeLay, K Street Project, that whole, that whole rather, um, shall we say, unsavory uh, stuff that's come out in the in the news. So you know that it 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 makes you shudder, right, to think that the uh, of all this kind of stuff. I think the Country Club Republicans recognized that they needed to have a populist arm that they're just. You know, the, the the party of real wealth in the country is very powerful and can do what's sometimes called astroturf lobbying, where they you know invent grassroots movements by just paying for it. Um, but ultimately, they they would not survive, or at least not continue to uh, take an increasing share of the nation's wealth as they have over the last twenty years without a populist arm. And that populist arm that was available, obviously, is not going to be the trade unions. The trade unions are over on the other side, right? So what about these these Christians, or Christianists, as I sometimes call them? Uh, let's pump them up. Let's tell them that, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, to, you know, take the porridge, right? To, um, that they will have the power that they feel they need and that their sense of cultural grievance will be answered, and in return... Uh, we get, you know, free trade uh, deals, and we get uh, we get uh, uh, no taxation on invested income. Um, but amazingly, um, it's been a, a sort of one-sided proposition because you you see you hear all the time that uh, from the, the 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 most powerful people on the Christian right, we elected you guys, meaning the the people who were put into office on this kind of odd couple platform country club and uh and uh revival tent uh, we put you guys in in office and uh, we get nothing you know you you pay us lip service on our stuff but then what you really care about is the estate tax right we it's a, it's uh, it's it's it, it, kevin phillips has written probably most authoritatively about this it's an unstable coalition and yet uh, thanks to the genius of, of uh, Ken Melman and, and Karl Rove and people like that, they've kept it together so far. Whether it'll go per- perpetually, I don't know. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU Radio. I'm Fred Stella, and my guest today is Reverend Peter Larman. He's the editor of the book Getting on Message, Challenging the Christian Right from the Heart of the Gospel. 
Let's talk a bit about the book itself and some of the essays that are in it. Uh, For instance, the one written by James M. Lawson, Jr., Higher Ground, the Nonviolence Imperative. Uh, How important do you think is nonviolence to the furthering of, of the Christian the Christian message, and is there a difference between nonviolence and pacifism in your mind? Uh, pacifism is a very uh, pure, and I don't say that disparagingly, uh, uh, position, and many people from the more pietist uh, side of the Christian heritage have said there's just no compromise on that. I mean, uh, uh, Jesus was uh, undoubtedly a pacifist, a pacifist who called for pacifism. There are uh, um, so there. I think there is a difference between people who are committed to nonviolence uh, as a way of life and people who are pure pacifists. Who uh, you know, as the as the um, caricature goes, wouldn't uh, uh, use force to defend their sister if their sister was assaulted. I remember I was a conscientious objector back in the Vietnam period, and I remember that the, that my draft board asked me that, right? I mean, they were kind of pushing me right to the wall there. Um, um, the idea of, of nonviolence as a way of life, and, and James Lawson writes just, just movingly about this, is that it's transformative to use the tools of, of, uh, of reconciliation and acceptance uh, and active listening, and it's transformative, very transformative, to, um, to absorb the hostility of others and not to return evil for evil. He's focused on, his essay is in two parts. First, he tells the, the, the very touching story of his own life. He's an African-American, and when his family moved uh, to move from one place to another in Massillon, Ohio, he was, you know, beaten and jeered and spit upon on his way to and from work, and he had to realize it one, one day, and I think his Christian home, his father was a pastor, and his mother sounds like a saint, right? Um, they made him know that God loved him unconditionally, uh, and he felt that. He felt touched. Um, and he felt the spirit of Jesus come into him, and he decided he was going to commit himself to to a different path. He wasn't going to he wasn't going to return evil for evil. Then at the end of the essay, he writes about and 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 of course he went on to be the sort of architect of of the nonviolent work of the civil rights uh, movement in so many ways. He's the exact contemporary of Dr. King. If Dr. King were alive, and they were good friends. And um, Lawson was in India studying with Gandhi before King went over there, and then somehow they got together in Ohio. They were both visiting a, a college campus there, and they became lifelong colleagues and friends. But at the end of this, Jim raises the question, has America heard this message? Does America want to acknowledge this dimension, hugely important dimension of the life and testimony of, of Jesus Christ? Um sometimes called the Councils of Perfection, right? The very last portion of the fifth chapter of Matthew, or the last portion of the Sermon on the Mount, which says, you know, be perfect. Very hard. It's much much easier in a culture like ours for people to say, well, I'm a realist. 
I'm, I know evil lurks in the heart of uh, in the heart of man. I will, uh, I will, you know, we'll have to be tough. We have to lock people away. We have to say an eye for an eye. Uh, we have to have capital punishment and so forth on, on down the line. Um, we are so, so, so far from the kingdom on those issues. Uh, obviously, our our posture toward the world of you know uh, dominance, right? um, not just first among equals, but the the international decider of who gets occupied or who gets invaded. That's amazing, and and so so profoundly at odds with the spirit of Jesus. So I think you know this. That essay is a challenge. I mean, I've read that essay several times, and I I thought, do I live my life like this? Am I that committed to transformational nonviolence? Um, I should be, but I'm not. I get the impression that uh, people who are committed to a nonviolent way of life, uh, for reasons of faith, they. They tend to exist uh, on a spectrum, and I see absolute pacifists, and I see people who attempt but say, yes, under these conditions, I'd be willing to whoop somebody upside the head, you know, all the way up to I support a standing army, et cetera, et cetera. Would you you agree that that's that's pretty much the lay of the land? Sure. There is a spectrum, Um, and you see it break down when people discuss... Uh, a worldwide conflagration like the Second World War. Uh, many, many people, uh, of course this was the era when Reinhold Niebuhr was among us and so forth, many, many people uh, who uh, right up until the uh, Pearl Harbor incident were saying, no, you know, this is not America's war. This is it's not America's way to interfere. We we should have learned our lesson after World War One, and so forth and so on. They changed, right? And they changed. And many of these people were Christians. Um, George McGovern, who's a committed Christian and the son of a minister, and so forth, is you know is one of them. These people, I think he was a fighter pilot. I mean, these people fought, um, you know, a hot war. Um, with I think with some sadness and some reluctance, but then the debate comes on matters like, uh, but was it really necessary to use atomic weapons against Japan? You know, the debate that never ends. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, there are all kinds of uh, people who say I'm committed to peace, but I'm not uh, a thorough pacifist, and I think that's an honorable position. There are people, obviously, scholars and uh, many people. In the, um, I say the Pietistic traditions or Anabaptist traditions. I mean the, the Mennonite brethren spectrum of Christianity who say, no, you've got it wrong. You know, it's, you've got to go all the way. Sure. Uh, we just have a couple of minutes left. So what I'd like to do is ask if there is any website connected with your work, Peter. Well, uh, yes, I. Um, write frequently for different blogs and I write on the site of Progressive Christians Uniting that's uh, uh, easy to find it's www.progressivechristiansuniting.org uh, all, all three words jammed together progressivechristiansuniting.org and we try to put on our site some of these issues of faith, culture, politics um, uh, in a you know, in a way that's comprehensible that people can get to. Um, 
we also work closely with something that was begun at the Pacific School of Religion uh, called uh, uh, Progressive Christian Witness, PCW, um, which is a very well edited, it's a curated site. It's unlike ours. Ours is more blogocentric. Um, and they raise a lot of these uh, same things as well. And this group that you mentioned in the introduction, Faith Voices for the Common Good, faithvoices.org, um, has wonderful resources as well. Okay. Well, the book that we're talking about right now that uh, was edited by our guest Peter Larman is Getting on Message, Challenging the Christian Right from the Heart of the Gospel, and we will continue our conversation next week at the same time. Peter, we'll look for you then. Great, Fred. Thanks. You're listening to WGVU. I'm Fred Stella with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. See you next week. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, president of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week we began our conversation with Reverend Peter Larman. He's recently edited a book called Getting on Message, Challenging the Christian Right from the Heart of the Gospel. Peter Larman is executive director of Progressive Christians Uniting, coordinator of the Center for Prophetic Renewal in Los Angeles, and a board member of Faith Voices for the Common Good. And before moving to California, Larman served as senior minister of New York's historic Judson Memorial Church. And Peter Larman, welcome to Common Threads once again. Fred, it's good to be back. Thank you. Listen, last, uh, last week we just started to actually get into the meat of the book. And um, we talked about nonviolence and we talked about, about a, a basic overview of the book. And I want to focus on a few of the essays that are in there. And one of them, and I know this, for people who are on the fence, so to speak, uh, because we're actually, you're actually trying to reach out to that great middle 
that that uh, doesn't is is willing to have an open mind about uh, a variety of subjects. Am I am I correct? Yes, and that that is exactly the intended audience: people who take the Bible seriously, who take their faith seriously, who are worried about the country, and who wonder how it is that uh, Christianity uh, Christianity's public face uh, seems to be so very much in one corner, ideological corner. Right, right. One chapter that uh, certainly stands out is the one by uh, Vivian Denise Nixon, uh, a Christian response to mass uh, mass incarnation, mass incarceration, unbind them, she says. It sounds like it could be a little bit of a radical uh, notion to to most Americans. Can you talk about that and give us uh, your your thoughts? Well, I I must say uh, that... She writes uh, one of the most biblically resonant uh, essays in this book, and she writes as someone who was uh, incarcerated uh, in in uh, New York State. Uh, she's the recipient of uh, an Open Society Fellowship, and she's working on her own book. I, I I have never met her, but I'm dying to meet her. Pardon the expression. I'm I'm eager to meet her um, because I I have a feeling she's one of these prophetic. Uh, people uh, whom the culture so much needs. She simply says that um, the way we think about people who are incarcerated, and there's just a brand new report, just just came out, um, sponsored by the Vera Institute of Justice, about the 2.2 million people, we have the highest incarceration rate in the world by far, disproportionately black and brown people. the the uh, issues uh, facing these institutions. I mean, uh, almost no real rehabilitative services. Most states have pulled back the uh, educational opportunities that were available to inmates. Health services in those places crumbling. No sense of uh, a future. And she, Vivian Nixon, wraps this into a biblical frame and says, um, what are we doing? Well, we're going completely with a a punishment uh, ethic. We're depriving people of their core humanity when we say to them, not not just, you know, we'll have you in lockdown for 22 out of 24 hours and the kinds of things that go on routinely in these places, but we will destroy your mind. We won't let you think. We will close down the prison library. We won't let you think. There were many uh, in New York, for example, uh, I, I supported and was active in, a, in an effort to uh, allow people with, behind bars in New York State jails uh, to study theology and to train for the ministry behind bars. That program was pulled by the state of New York. That is the cruelest form of torture. Um, and so she uses contemporary Christian ethics and different, different uh, schools of, of, of Christian thought to evaluate different responses uh, to people who are incarcerated, and uh, uh, it's a, it's a it's a very brisk, very challenging uh, piece of work. Uh, she's not saying simply unlock all the jails and let everybody go. She's saying uh, have a change of heart about what's going on here. Remember that it wasn't always this way. We've gone backward in our attitudes toward uh, toward incarceration. Uh, away from a more enlightened uh, view that we had some decades ago. Any idea 
some decades ago if the recidivism rate was was higher than it is now? Well, uh, it was lower, and the reason it was lower uh, is that we've we've uh, in a kind of descent into madness. Uh, we've passed all of these three strikes laws in so many states. California has a has a particularly bad one, um, and it it accounts for our recidivism rate being so very high. <laughs> we um, people come in for the third time uh, on a on a it could be a nonviolent uh, crime of some kind, it could be a petty theft, and they're in twenty five years to life. Um, when people who are treated that way get out, they're attitudes, if they get out, their attitudes towards society are destroyed. I mean, they have no, there's no sense of, uh, I was treated fairly by society, I paid my debt. I mean, you never stop paying your debt under that framework. Um, The other uh, uh, issue about recidivism is if the communities that are are, uh, supplying most of the inmates are not healed, I mean, communities that have essentially where deindustrialization has taken place, there are no jobs, there's a, a ferocious and vicious drug trade. People come out, they don't get any support, they get no housing, they get no job, no real job training, and in fact, they have to check off that I was a felon, and they, so they're effectively deprived of economic livelihood that way. Of course those people are going to end up back in, you know, half of them. More than half of them are going to end up back. And so we've got big, big problems that we just don't want to look at. In California, the entire uh, prison system here, which is mammoth, um, uh, is under a federal court uh, uh, jurisdiction, federal court trusteeship, because the, of the uh, total lack of any kind of health care for people inside. I mean, it's just, it's just atrocious. It's, just a, it's like a gulag, and we, we pride ourselves rightly so, on being an enlightened country, being the world's oldest democracy, all this kind of stuff, and yet we run this barbaric system, and I must say, for the most part, not questioned by Christians. Now, one of the things that the conservative parties have uh, have done in the past few years is encourage an understanding and a compassion for victims' rights. Yeah. Could well, you, I think you restorative you? justice. Restorative justice is an appropriate model. It's often called that. Restorative justice, where uh, uh, part of the rehabilitation or part of the punishment, actually, uh, for a convicted person is to is to have to deal with the human reality of uh, the people who were victimized or their survivors. I do understand that. Um, so much mass incarceration, though, um, uh, is is accounted for by people uh, who didn't. It's not like that. In other words, they didn't uh, they didn't uh, mug somebody, right? Or they didn't uh, kidnap somebody's daughter. Uh, they um, they uh, uh, I don't know stole a, a, a bag of Cheetos, and it was their third offense. So they're you know so they're behind bars. So for that kind of situation, uh, the restorative model doesn't work. But the victims' rights movement is a legitimate movement, and it has to be taken account of in this mix. And then uh, you also have an essay here. I'm looking for it right now. Oh, here, Women, Childbearing, and uh, and Justice. Is this the one that deals with abortion? It is, and, and the approach taken by the author, uh, who is a minister, 
she's an Episcopal minister in New York City and a mother, is an unusual one. I challenged her on it, but she wanted to go forward with it. She said, look, the issue really at the at bottom here is women's moral discernment. We shouldn't celebrate uh, abortion. We shouldn't celebrate unaccountable choice, as though having an abortion is like you know picking a brand at the supermarket. That's not uh, people... Americans understand that that's uh, wrong, and that's a uh, you know a self-defeating way to address these issues. But since men historically, under uh, what's called just war doctrine, men historically in the church have uh, labored and meditated over the circumstances and conditions under which it's acceptable to do what is wrong, namely take life, you know, under under just war. Since that's the case, why don't we see if we can explore a parallel discernment using those very same categories, right? You know, it's sort of the last resort, proportionality, all those things that, that, that are part of just war thinking um, in terms of the decision to have an abortion. And let's make the church a full party to this. Now, the reason I... I, uh, when Chloe proposed this, uh, her name is Chloe Breyer, when she proposed this approach, by the way, she's the daughter of a Supreme Court justice, um, Stephen Breyer. Mm. Um, when she proposed this uh, approach, I was a little bit skeptical, but then I thought, you know, this whole climate is uh, changing. And she found a very, very good biblical passage. All these essays are supposed to be supported biblically. Um, she found a very good passage about um, where the famous, it's repeated in two Gospels, Matthew and Mark, when uh, a non-Jew, a Samarian woman, uh, uh, seeks the uh, healing of her child, and Jesus at first refuses. This, 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 this is not Jesus' best moment, and it's great that the Gospels retain this. He says, no, you know, only, I'm only here for the children of Israel. I'm not dealing with you people, you outsiders. And the woman persists, right? She persists because she knows she is right morally, right? That there's something wrong with the refusal to heal her child. And um, it's just a marvelous little story, and it points to the fact that the only time Jesus kind of admits that he's wrong uh, is in the face of a woman's moral discernment. It's a great, uh, it's a great the, the biblical scholars use the word pericope. It's a great story. Somebody from the opposite camp, though, might say, isn't it interesting that you're using a, a, an example of Jesus healing a child yeah. to, to strengthen the, the uh, uh, argument that uh, a woman should take the life of an unborn child? Well, that's right. And there's a further, uh, there's a further uh, issue that people have raised about this, which is, well, wait a minute, at this point... Do we really want to be lifting up just war theory? This goes back to the, our discussion of the Lawson essay. Do we want to be uh, lifting up just war theory and making that the frame? So, yeah, these are problems, but, you know, it's, it's the more people can talk about these things and engage, again, in a respectful way, the better off we're all going to be looking for that middle ground. Absolutely, and I think, uh, quite frankly, the left has done a, a, not a great job at all, for instance, just using the word choice in, in uh, uh, stump speeches. 
Yep. You know, it's, a, it, it, it's, a, it's a mistake. There's a, a wonderful essay published a couple of years back on how the abortion war was lost, and that's precisely the author's point. I'm, I'm blanking on the author's name, but uh, that is how this thing was uh, lost. I mean, it was just... Uh, it, the people who were lost in this are the American people, the people in the middle again, right? Who, who don't think of this as a decision without consequences, who don't think of it as, you know, consumer choice. Um, uh, and what, what I think the, the, uh, the uh, side that uh, supports women's rights has failed to get is that women should acknowledge that abortion is a difficult and painful thing. And that voice has been has been missing from the from the left as you say do you believe that people on the right would if they could actually outlaw contraception well it's happening in some instances um i'm um very interested to see uh how definitions um change and how this how the, there's now a continuum between the, the pro-life position on abortion to a, to an anti uh, to an anti uh, contraception uh, point of view. There's some evidence that this is actually uh, happening, and I don't have the citations in front of me. But um, there's certainly been a lot of discussion over in that camp uh, of this of this point. I mean the um, the um, there's a, like uh, what I would describe as a kind of infinite regression. Once you say that the conceptus, this is a pre-embryo, is a human being made in the image of likeness and likeness in God, then why wouldn't you say that the ovum itself, the unfertilized ovum or the uh, sperm, is also a human? I mean, you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's so far from biblical thinking, by the way, right? I mean the. Jewish tradition needs to be consulted on this. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's just we've gone a long, 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 long way. And and the best single treatment of this issue is in not in my book. It's in Randy Balmer's uh, new book called Thy Kingdom Come. He does a great job about how the abortion debate has been pushed into uh, pushed by the right, uh, the religious right, into a into into a, an extreme. That is uh, not in accord with you know, millennia of ethical thinking about this. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU Radio. I'm Fred Stella, and my guest today is Reverend Peter Larman. He is the editor of the book we're talking about today, Getting on Message, Challenging the Christian Right from the Heart of the Gospel. One of the other essays in the book... Uh, Peter, by Heidi Newmark, is Strangers No More, and we're talking about the immigration issue, which is very, very hot right now. Um, what is the progressive Christian stance on that? I, as I have to ask, <laughs> I no. think I, I think uh, this this is definitely an issue where the the progressive slash liberal Christian viewpoint is splashed all over the newspaper along with everybody else's viewpoint. Right, and and far be it from me, Fred, to try to give a definitive progressive position. I mean, I think the for me the bottom line is uh, uh, what's called enforcement only, um, as represented by the Sensenbrenner bill, House Bill 4437, which now has to be reconciled with uh, the Senate. Um, uh, 
the idea that uh, uh, everybody who who's here undocumented or illegal has to be felonized um, that's that's pretty tough I mean that's that's pretty hard to imagine from a progressive Christian perspective what happened under the liberalization of um, trade you know NAFTA and subsequent provisions is that capital can flow freely uh, across borders jobs can flow freely across borders but human beings cannot and there's a contradiction uh, uh, in that uh, the, the the issue though in terms of a in terms of an actual hard policy is the answer probably is not simply to say well borders don't count either right, right. that's that's that has moral consequences of a different kind. It particularly has moral consequences for those who played by the rules, number one, and also, you know, native-born uh, workers who are struggling at minimum wage jobs. There's just no question that, that economically, when you bring in a vast new pool of low-skilled workers, wages are driven down. There's just no disputing that. Um, so it's not, you know, the morality is not on one side of this or the other. The other thing that I think uh, progressives, whether Christian or, or, or not, uh, need to think about is the agony of a country like Mexico. I mean, the way to solve this long term is to build up Mexico so that people get gainful employment there. Um, but again, the, 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 the NAFTA um, formula for treating this matter has led actually to uh, more desperation on the Mexican side uh, rather than more middle-class jobs or, or what we would call family-sustaining jobs. That's why there, there are three states within Mexico that have lost 25% of their population to, the, to, to El Norte. It's not that these people are dying to be American so much. They're dying to survive. They have to survive. Yeah, this is one thing. When, when I read letters to the editor, the people that are just hardcore enforcement only, let's round them up, let's get them out of here. While I understand, yes, they did they did uh, commit an, an illegal act by coming here. Number one, I've always remembered that according to Christian doctrine, one does not incur a sin if one steals a loaf of bread to feed the starving family. And number two, we have a long, long legal history of making deals with felons with with hardcore criminals right. you know if we can't make a deal with these people who acted in desperation yeah. uh after making deals with mafia hitmen right eh, something's wrong right and, and and the people who talk about a path to citizenship are not talking about amnesty that's such demagoguery they're, they're talking about people paying quite a severe you know, they have to acknowledge that they're wrong. They have to admit their wrongdoing. They have to kind of start over, go back in line. It's not an automatic uh, thing by any means, uh, uh, but it's 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 more humane. I mean, the, I did a whole um, collection of Bible verses the first time all the clergy leaders went to Washington on this thing, uh, and the one that stuck out was you know the 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 un un ambiguous expectation that the stranger who resides among you you shall treat as one of your own right you will make no distinction as far as i can tell uh uh jesus wasn't obsessed with 
boundary issues and enforcing uh, boundaries and so forth. He created a common table and broke a lot of boundaries within his society by bringing people together. Um, I don't think that a completely open border, nobody's talking about an open border. We're talking about a, a, a humane compromise, and uh, humane compromises seem to be what are so hard to achieve in a polarized culture today. Where do you think uh, in, in this next generation, where do you think that people like the Mexicans who are living here in America, uh, any, any hint as to where they will fall in the, on the political spectrum? Well, that's a very interesting uh, issue. I mean, the, um, the Republican Party has realized, I mean, uh, Mr. Bush increased his share of the, his, of the uh, Hispanic or Latino vote quite significantly in 2004. Um, the Republican Party has figured out that these folks are really, really hardworking, right? They're very entrepreneurial, if given a, you know, half a chance. And also, um, uh, and we know this, the uh, Pentecostal churches which tend to be more conservative politically. There's no, there's no question about that. Uh, certainly on these culture issues, Pentecostal churches are making enormous inroads among people of Mexican origin. So I think that you know the Republican strategists, the Carl Rose, who have with their computer brains, are thinking, well, at least we're going to split this and maybe do a little bit better. Who knows, right? Uh, it, it, the idea that people of uh, people with Hispanic surnames are going to be reliable supporters of the Democrats, I think, is preposterous. I think it's going to be contested territory all the way. And uh, what is your vision right now for the uh, the foreseeable future? Say the two thousand six two thousand eight elections. Not asking you to make any predictions, but. What is your gut telling you in terms of what's going to be important for for those elections? Well, this morning's uh, news reports indicate that uh, uh, 59% of people surveyed now think that the um, Iraq war was a mistake for the country. Um, that's really interesting. That That's up by 25% over just 18 months. There's a huge turning now, and I don't think the, the, the uh, death of Sarkawi is going to make the slightest difference. In fact, I think probably there'll be some horrendous new, you know, um, terrorist incident or, or, you know, kidnapping or something ghastly. I'm sure there will be, um, and it'll just keep going. There's no uh, end in sight to this, and the... the um, the underlying doctrine, the dominance doctrine, um, this uh, unbelievable arrogance is what got us uh, into it. The other thing that is very much in people's minds is the meltdown in health care, the number of people who don't have health care or who have health care but discover that the stuff they need is not covered. Um, uh, the burden of health care costs on small employers, I mean, these things are, are just taking a tremendous toll. So I think people are beginning to, pardon the expression, wake up and say, what's going on? This war costs $250 million a week. Um, probably, we've probably already committed $2 trillion to this thing. Um, the, it, it's not related, not related uh, uh, to 
really controlling terrorism as 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 originally premised because in fact it spurred more of it i don't know if you followed what just happened in somalia but we backed the wrong people so now we've got radical islamists in charge of somalia on the horn of africa thanks a lot cia i mean you know people see that people see that this administration is both wrong and incompetent and i think the culture of corruption thing may be a factor i don't know uh, I think people tend to say a plague on both your houses. You all do it. You're all corrupt in Washington. But there's an interesting um, uh, window here for an articulated message that says we've lost our way. We've had unworthy leadership, but it's not too late. We can we can we can still have a government and public services that that you know are rational and accountable to us. Uh, we're coming down to the wire, Peter. Last week you gave us a couple of websites, people interested in following your, your writings, your blogs. Sure. The, 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 for us, for me, the main one is um, uh, the organization I work for. It's Progressive uh, Christians Uniting, www.progressivechristiansuniting.org. Not united, but uniting. Um, also, I mentioned uh, Progressive Christian Witness, um, which is a project of the um, Pacific School of Religion and faithvoices.org. I mean, there's lots and lots of resources out there at this point, um, which I'm sure many of your listeners are already tuned into. Sure. Those are some. And the book we're talking about today, and we did last week as well, Getting on Message, Challenging the Christian Right from the Heart of the Gospel. My guest has been Reverend Peter Larman. Peter, thanks so much for being with us these past couple of weeks. Brad, it's a, it's a pleasure. Uh, your audience has a lot of my people. Uh, I was raised Dutch Calvinist, so my name has two A's in the first syllable. I think there are quite a few people in your phone book with that same last name. I think you're right. Well, it's been a pleasure. This is Fred Stella from the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Thanks so much, and join us next week for Common Threads. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.